Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Here on the Listener's Commentary, our goal is to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life so that you can follow Jesus right in the context of your everyday life. And this section that we're going to look at in this recording is all about following Jesus and warning us of how challenging and difficult that is. Here in this recording, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Previously, in chapter 14, Luke records Jesus' actions and words at a dinner party. Jesus had said that God's kingdom operates on the basis of self-lowering, not self-exalting. And in the immediate verses, just before this section that we're looking at on this recording, uh, Jesus had said that many of those people who assume that they're fine— Many of those who assume that they'll be included in God's kingdom and be present at the great messianic banquet at the end of time actually won't be there because they're too full of themselves, too self-preoccupied, and they treat the host, namely Jesus, shamefully and dishonorably, and they don't gather to him. And so uh, Jesus, in the parable that he tells in the preceding section, opens the door wide and welcomes all comers. Like, it's a wide-open invitation to the Messianic banquet. Anybody can come, compel them to come, persuade them to come. Well, here, in Luke 14, 25-35, here, we balance that out. Yes, anybody is welcome, but it's not a free-for-all. The door is open wide, and the invitation is being extended to everybody. But to accept the invitation means you have to be Jesus' disciple. So what does that entail? And that's the question that uh, we're going to see answered here in verses 25 through 35. It's really a great complement to the preceding section. So the preceding section says anybody can come, but they've got to be a disciple. What does that discipleship entail? What does that look like? Now, before we look at how Jesus answered that question, just a quick note on the structure of verses 25 through 35. This passage is arranged like this. You get up front a challenge about what discipleship demands or cost, and it's a serious challenge. Then, in the middle, you get two pictures about counting the cost, one about building a building, one about a king planning a battle and going out to war. So a challenge about what discipleship costs, two pictures about counting the cost, and then at the end you wrap it up with another challenge about the serious cost of discipleship. So that's the structure. So what does discipleship cost? Well, here's the way this uh, story unfolds. Pick up in verse 25. Now, large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them. And so here at this point, uh, we have the reminder of large crowds are following along. They're gathering around Jesus and they're going along with him as he travels from place to place and teaching. These large crowds represent potential disciples. They see something special about Jesus. They hear something unique about his teaching. They experience a distinct and powerful graciousness from him. They love his miracles, and they've been, some of them have benefited from that. So you've got large crowds that are potential disciples. But they need to know that just being in the crowd doesn't make them his disciple. Just admiring him 
doesn't make them a disciple. Being a fan of Jesus doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus. They need to know that. Uh, being a disciple of Jesus is serious business. It's going against the grain, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go against their culture, which is going to lead to conflict and difficulty and hardship and a person has to decide, are you really in? Are you really there for the long haul? Do you really want to follow Jesus and be his disciple? Have you thought through all of that? So, so you have these large crowds around Jesus, and Jesus says to the crowds, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says to these crowds, being his disciple requires absolute loyalty and devotion to Jesus at all costs. Absolute loyalty uh, and devotion to Jesus that impacts all other relationships, even your closest relationships, even your highest relationships in their culture, even the authority structures of your family relationships. Like um, being Jesus' disciple is going to impact all of those relationships. Now, the parallel passage in Matthew clarifies the force of hate here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and so on, that's shocking. That's incredibly strong language, and it's a little bit disconcerting. And that's where Matthew's uh, parallel passage comes in and helps because it, Matthew clarifies the sense of hate here. In Matthew chapter 10 verses 37 through 38, the way it reads is anyone who loves father, mother, and etc. more than me. And that's the force of the word hate here. It's, it's really to love less. Uh, if anyone comes to me and doesn't love his father, mother, wife, and so on, less than me. But it's a deep less. It's a serious less. It's a distance, a very distant less. Like, you might be in second place, but you're so far in second place, it's no comparison. That's the force of this word hate here. Love for and loyalty to Jesus must be so deep and so great and so high that family and our most important relationships take a distant second. Indeed, even our own life must take a distant second. We must love it deeply less than we love Jesus. Jesus is calling people to a way of life that is so against the grain and so contrary to the status quo that they must set aside all of it for the sake of following Jesus. It's similar to what the Apostle Paul says as he kind of gives a reflective bit of his testimony in Philippians 3 where he says, Whatever things were gained to me, all my privileges and accomplishments as a Jew, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, is what he says in Philippians 3. In fact, he goes on in Philippians 3 and to compare it to um, worthless filth, to decaying, rotting food, or to the, he compares it to the kind of thing that you find in the bottom of an outhouse, right? Like he says, like, all my privileges, all my achievements, all my stuff from my upbringing, it's worthless dung, it's filth, it's rottenness compared 
to the value of knowing Jesus. And that's the same thing Jesus really saying here is that uh, our relationship with Jesus must far outweigh all other relationships in life. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, you have to die to be his disciple. Verse 27, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Crucifixion in their culture was a known reality. Now, Jesus himself obviously hasn't been crucified yet, so they haven't watched that happen, but they will. And Jesus knows he's on a collision course with a cross. He knows that's coming as he's heading to Jerusalem. So they'll see that these words that he spoke will just take on a whole new dimension once they experience that and see Jesus undergo that. But even at this point in time, although Jesus has not been crucified himself, crucifixion itself was a known reality. Um, it was used as a brutal form of state terrorism almost by the Romans. It was a way of keeping the populace, particularly on the fringes of empire like out here in Judea, keeping them under control. It was, it was, an, it was intended to be shameful and degrading, and it was horrific. It was an awful way to die. And they knew that. And so when Jesus says, if someone doesn't pick up his cross to go get crucified, he can't be my disciple. What Jesus, I mean, Jesus just threw a bomb into their understanding of following him and being a disciple. Uh, it, it calls to mind Dietrich Bonhoeffer's well-known classic line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Um, this is the call of discipleship. This is what discipleship costs. So to these crowds gathered around him, Jesus wants them to know, look, just being in my presence isn't enough. You have to decide, are you really in? Do you really want to be my disciple? And there's a cost to that, uh, a cost that could be compared to the shame and the pain of crucifixion. Well, from there then, we get two pictures of counting the cost. The first picture is of a building project, verse 28. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Who would do that? And the answer, the implied answer is, no one would do that, right? Like, no one would do that. You're not going to just start building and then realize, oh man, I run out of supplies, I don't have any more money to finish it. No one's going to do that. And if you did, you would look foolish. You would look foolish in our culture. You would look foolish in their culture. So Jesus goes on and says in verse 29, Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Foolishness. You would be completely uh, dishonored, treated with shame. The second picture is a picture of a king planning a battle. Or, verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Like, wouldn't a king do that? Yes, a king would do that. That's the implied answer, right? Like, any king that, that knows anything about fighting battle is at least going to weigh the strength of his army against the strength of their army um, and say, does this make any sense whatsoever? And and after he weighs the cost and realizes, man, hmm, 
this may not work out so well for me. Then he's got to make other plans. So verse 32, otherwise, while the other one is on the way, still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So if this other king is advancing against him, he looks at his army, realizes, oh man, I don't have enough to defeat this guy. Let's see if we can negotiate some peace, right? Like both of these events were familiar enough in their culture that everyone knew how these things were planned out, how these things went, and they knew the seriousness of failure on both counts. Um, and the same is true with discipleship. Are you sure? Do you really intend to follow regardless of the cost? regardless of the loss or the difficulty or the rejection or whatever comes with it, do you really want to be Jesus' disciple? And so this section ends with Jesus issuing a final challenge about the seriousness of discipleship. Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Uh, the word translated give up is literally take leave of. It's the same word used in Luke 9.61 for the would-be disciple who wants to go and follow Jesus, but first he would like to get permission from his family uh, in order to do that, to take leave of his family. Here, that word is used more metaphorically for renounce, say goodbye to. That's the idea here. And so, who, who does not renounce all of his possessions? And the idea seems to be when he says all of his possessions is, again, counting the cost of discipleship means renouncing earthly possessions, which means holding them with an open hand and being willing to leave them behind if necessary. So you don't cling to your earthly goods. You don't cling to your earthly things, all your possessions. You hold those things with an open hand because you don't really possess them anymore. They're just they're just things. They're just part of life, but following Jesus is more important. And so you renounce them and hold them with an open hand. Um, Jesus goes on and says, uh, speaking still about discipleship, verse 20, or 34, he says, Therefore, notice this is a conclusion from everything he said, Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless for the soil or the manure pile, and so it's thrown out. And that's the point, that last line really summarizes the point here of this, this little wrap-up section, uselessness. Uh, salt is extremely valuable and necessary for life. When you research the history of salt, you realize that whole kingdoms were, were you know, built up by, grew out of the salt trade and the wealth of the salt trade, uh, road systems and cities and all that. Like salt was extremely valuable and we, you know, we're just so used to being able to go to the store, buy it. We don't think about this, but salt has been historically extremely valuable and necessary for life. But if salt is diluted or corrupted, it's useless. The word here for tasteless um, is really literally the word for foolish, but it's the idea of being corrupted or diluted down. And, and now it's useless. You can't use it for anything. So when salt fails to be salt, it's useless. And so too with disciples. This is the point here. So too with disciples, they are called to be followers of and ambassadors of the king. They're called to be salt. Um, but if they become foolish, deluded, or corrupted, they're useless. Um, 
if they're not driven by absolute loyalty to Jesus, then what's the point? That's the idea, and that's the serious call of discipleship. Um, you've got to be 100% purely devoted to Jesus. You've got to be fully, completely salt. You can't be partially salt. You can't be slightly salt. You can't be diluted salt because salt that's unsalty is good for nothing anymore. It's useless. And so are you sure you're really in to be a disciple of Jesus, 100% absolute loyal to him? Um, and Jesus ends the section then by saying, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, are you sure you're ready to listen? Are you you understanding what Jesus is asking, right? Are you you hearing the seriousness of what it means to be a disciple? So keep the scene in mind. You've got large crowds that are just kind of gathering around Jesus. They're around him to see his miracles. They're around him to hear his teaching. They're, they're enjoying his presence. They see something special about him. Maybe they admire him. And Jesus is saying, all right, that's great. That's the top of the funnel. But the real the real key here is being my disciple and that cost. And so this section reminds us that discipleship demands all. It demands absolute loyalty and obedience to Jesus, renouncing all relationships, renouncing all possessions. They no longer have a place in the control room of life. Jesus does. Jesus is the sole master in the control room of life. He calls the shots. What he expects happens that's what discipleship demands. Now, the reality is, um, when we first start following Jesus, we don't know what all that looks like, right? We don't know how that's all going to play out. And so the point isn't we have to have perfect obedience at the beginning. Not at all. The point is we have to have a completely aligned heart. Yes, I will follow Jesus. I don't know where it's going to go. I may not always 100% get it right, but if I don't, I'll pick myself up and I'll get back to following him because he demands all, and it's worth it, and it's worth it. That's Paul's point in Philippians 3 that I mentioned earlier in this recording is that it's worth it because all other things can't hold a candle to the value of Jesus. And so being his disciple is worth renouncing all things for. Another reflection I would offer out of this section is just how we call people to faith in Jesus. It just seems to me that in our modern evangelism, we so often soft pedal following of Jesus. We want people so badly to come in and quote unquote be saved that we don't we don't talk like Jesus does here. We don't talk about the seriousness of being his disciple, um, that we have soft pedaled what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The gospel includes calling people to follow Jesus as king. And so we need to call people to discipleship, not just conversion, not just getting their sins forgiven and getting a ticket to heaven when they die. They're being called into a relationship with Jesus as king and as Lord and as master. They're being called to be his disciple. So let's not soft pedal it. I think part of the reason we have uncommitted Christians is because we've, we haven't called them to be disciples like Jesus does here.